I am so sorry I wasn't there last week. The technical problems that were there the week before still remained. And then Natalie and I just ran out of time and we weren't able to get the podcast to you last week. So huge apologies. But we are here with Problems Solved. And I'm delighted to say that my guest this week is Safia Sakachi. She is a photographer. She is a chef and she is also the founder of Another Pantry, the digital platform that celebrates contemporary food, culture, recipes and stories. As I was looking through Another Pantry when I first came across it, I was struck by the beautiful photography and all the delicious sounding recipes. But it also dawned on me how in need we were of a space that bridged the gap between the cooking and the eating of food with the creatives that deliver it to us in the form of content, as we describe it. Community is at the heart of Another Pantry's design and it connects the dots between photographers, writers, chefs and stylists within the food industry. I was lucky enough to meet Safia when she was in Bruton and popped into the shop and she's been lovely over the years recommending good recipe books and things like that. I am excited for you to hear this and of course Natalie and I chat afterwards. I'm good. I just got back from a trip to Mexico, so I hope I'm not half asleep. Um, (laughs) But I've been, um, I guess, doing lots of different things, which has kind of been my answer for probably the last seven, eight years. I, last year, as you mentioned, launched Another Pantry, which a lot of people don't actually realise is my side hustle. It's still my side hustle. And alongside that, uh, I'm a freelance writer and photographer, primarily photographer. But yeah, my background is also in in baking and in the kitchen I started off as a pastry chef so I still try and dabble in all of those things and I think kind of connect the dots with all of them I guess as you said even through another pantry but also in my own work mm-hmm. so um so lots of lovely creative things within the food world um, amazing and were you in Mexico with work or pleasure I wasn't I was there with um with pleasure you didn't know <laughs> if that was an option was it with with pleasure <laughs> um no it was just a a nice holiday um yeah it was uh we went last year as well and we actually went literally the day after the first another pantry pop-up so it really it feels like my kind of escape place already yes Uh, what was the food like what do you remember most about your food experiences in this trip to Mexico oh I think it's probably one of the best places in the world that I've been to for food I don't think we had a single bad meal to be honest Um, whether you're in a fancy restaurant or just a casual restaurant or eating off a random stall on the street, everything you eat is just packed with flavour and delicious. And yeah, all kind of lovely local produce. And like my, my favourite thing in the world, anyone who knows me will know that I'm obsessed with corn. Really? So I probably should have been Mexican. Yeah, I love <laughs> corn. Um, like any kind of corn, sweet corn, tortillas, anything. Yeah. <laughs> Whereabouts were you? So it, was, it was great. We were in Mexico City. Um, last year we did a bit more of a trip around and we went to Oaxaca, uh, which definitely feels a lot my, more like, you know, what you'd expect from Mexico. Um, Mexico City is a bit more cosmopolitan and, um, and it's a, a much bigger city. But it also, it just feels like a bit of an escape. Even coming from London, everything's so green. There's just so much green space and trees everywhere. And it, it feels quite calm for quite a mad place. 
It made perfect sense that you founded the platform Another Pantry. You've got a wide skill set as a chef, photographer and writer, and it combines all those strengths. When did you dream up the idea that went to launch in 2022? So it started, uh, I guess, in, in lockdown, as I feel many kind of new businesses in the last couple of years did. I actually remember specifically it was May 2020 when I had the idea. I think I was sitting on my kitchen floor at home and I was just like, oh, I've, I've got this idea and I just feel like I should run with it and do something with it. It just, I suppose the idea came primarily from the atmosphere that was around at that time and the, the sense of community that was around on social media and online, even on TV and everything. Like It just felt like so many people within the food industry were kind of coming together and sharing ideas, sharing tips. It seemed that no matter where you came from in the UK or like what your background was or work, food was something that just seemed to connect everyone and provide a sense of comfort. I think if you ask anyone kind of what they did during lockdown, it was a lot of time spent in the kitchen. And I don't know, I really felt that as as I suppose I've worked in the food industry for a while now, it just made me really happy to see people who perhaps hadn't connected with food in a similar way, suddenly connecting with it. And, you know, the scarcity of, of things at that time made us realise, I suppose, how fragile food can be and how fragile the food system is. And we started valuing it a bit more and we started supporting local businesses that we hadn't previously supported. So I remember at that time, I think there was a charity bake sale that was going on just before then. Um, and it was like a raffle. And I think I'd raffled something baked to someone who had won and they were picking it up that day and I could not find eggs I just couldn't get eggs anywhere like I'd gone to Sainsbury's like walked down done my like one outing of the day I was like what do I do and it was in a very very random little shop that I'd never been into that I managed to find six eggs and yeah I suppose it was just that mentality that made me think I want us to hold on to this and you know people the cliche was that people were making banana bread and making sourdough and they realized how hard making sourdough was and that it takes like two days and I was like, yes, that's why it costs four or five pounds a loaf rather than 70p, the loaf that you get in the supermarket. And yeah, so I, I kind of wanted to create like an online hub, I suppose, of all of that, um, something to help us hold on to the new the way that we were looking at food and to celebrate the people that were sharing that wisdom. And I suppose with my background as a, a photographer and having done some food styling previously and also having worked in the kitchen, I noticed that also everything on social media and that was being shared was a little bit more thoughtful at that time. Whereas previously it felt a bit like food content online was a bit mindless and there would just be so much of it. Whereas it seemed like someone had put pause on life at that time mm -hmm. and we'd slowed down. And so I wanted to create a space online. Yeah. That, that held on to that, that slowed things down a bit, that valued food and the people behind it and, and celebrated it, I suppose. Absolutely. And also share the community that is in the food industry, because I think so many people don't get to see all the steps behind, I don't know, an advertising campaign or a shop identity that's around food. You know, the photographer, the, the writer, the strategist, the stylist, the creative director. I think your platform brings us to the centre of, of that community and shows us how all those dots are connected well thank you another pantry also was a pop-up store which yes. came first was it the store or the platform this is an interesting one um the pop-up was just an idea that I had whilst I was kind of building the platform so it took me a little while I had the idea in 2020 and I started working on it immediately and to be honest it was probably ready before 
about six months before I launched it but it took me about six months of building up the courage to be like okay I'm actually going to do it and in that time I think real life things were starting to happen again and I had this idea because of over lockdown all these restaurants and some of the people that I was featuring on the website um, had started making their own products so restaurants would putting their jams into jars and they're, you know bottling up their cocktails and serving their pasta sauces and we were able to take that home and recreate it at home and I noticed that all of them were selling them primarily only through their websites and there wasn't one place where you could find them so I just thought it would be a fun idea and to link you know with the fact that this was this whole idea of another pantry launched um, or came about during lockdown so I thought it would be cool to do something exciting to mark the fact that we were able to see each other again, able to do something fun, to celebrate the restaurants and bakeries and all those people that had kind of kept us going through that time, I suppose. And I thought, you know, when big things happen in the food world or if someone launches a book or something like that, usually it feels like quite an exclusive event, the launch event, or like mm. people only with people within the industry are able to go to those events. Whereas this whole platform was about community and kind of breaking the barrier between the industry and the consumer and um, its audience. Uh, so I thought it would be a really cool place to kind of bring together food world, customer, have a bit of fun, find products that you can't normally find. Uh, and it was only supposed to be a one-off to, to launch the platform. So the platform launched in February uh, and this event, the first pop-up took place in March. And to be honest, I, I actually hadn't planned on doing more than one uh, because it was just supposed to be a one-off event. But the response to it was so great. And it turns out that there are people just as bonkers as I am about these uh, restaurants and these places around the country uh, that I ended up doing another one later in the year. Just going back to the the fact that you found lots of people after lockdown started jarring their own jams or sauces or, you know, produce I found that such an interesting journey as well because I think lots of people started selling food as a grocery because that was one of the government's limitations wasn't it that you can only open if you're selling provisions that we need essentials essentials that's it essentials and I I loved seeing all these people suddenly realizing well actually we can make essential things and we do make essential things it's just how we package Mm. them and provide them and out of that us as consumers now have lots of other delicious things that we can buy as a permanent thing it wasn't just a lockdown solution it stuck and it stayed and then things like your business do any of the brands that you initially sold stick in your mind like a jam or a or a hot sauce or so actually another one of your guests Flora Shedden I was really lucky I'd uh, I'd emailed her and I said I'd had this idea and I'd love to bring around down to London and have her products in there and we managed to make it work I remember she, I think it was the the day before the pop-up all of she'd sent about eight different boxes via Royal Mail to go to my boyfriend's flat because he was about five minutes away from where the pop-up was and it didn't arrive in time and I was panicking uh, but it finally did arrive like I think it was probably about an hour before the shop opened but her nougat oh my god if you have a chance to go up there and get her nougat or sometimes she does the occasional box on her website as well I, I think I bought about like 15 of them over the really? course of one week. And the second pop-up, it was the first thing I reordered. Yeah, I loved it. It's so, so good. 
the bow sources were really fun i loved those they were also just probably the most beautiful products in the shop the the design of them as per bow everything Mm -hmm. they were great and you had a space at coles drop yard the first time and then your second pop-up was in covent garden so much more central how did you find the experience of both shops because i felt that the second pop-up was bigger and made more Mm. permanent so yeah the first one was in Coldrop's yard which um I had actually been pointed in that direction by someone else in the food industry it was actually um Missy Flynn who runs Rita's Dining because they used to have a sandwich shop on that same street and someone had told me to speak to her about getting a unit on that street I think so I messaged her and I was like I really want to do something at Coldrop's yard do you have any tips and she said oh well there's this unit called kiosk um which does events try and contact them And I walked past it and I was and I'd searched previously on, you know, appear here and all of the possible pop up websites that I could find. And everything was crazy expensive and just impossible. And a lot of them just didn't want to take someone on for a week. But I walked past kiosk and I was like, no, this is definitely the space I want to do it in. And I emailed them. And I think this was in maybe August of 2021. And I'd said, oh, I really want to do it in October this year. And they were fully booked until the end of the year. So to be honest, the timing of it and the timing of the launch of Another Pantry as well was kind of based on the fact that I wanted to do it in that space. So I waited and pre-booked for March. And the reason I loved Cold Drops Yard is because the street that we were on particularly is called Lower Stable Street. And that's kind of a separate entity to the rest of Cold Drops Yard. It's curated by a separate company and every single shop down there is a small independent business. And when you go into the shops there, the people that you see in those shops are the people that own them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a really nice sense of community there. And I just felt like we would fit really well. And to be honest, if I were ever to do a permanent another pantry, Cold Drops Yard would be somewhere that I would look at because it's kind of the perfect location for people from East London who, you know, I, I feel like a large portion of our audience are around there but also the rest of London to get to, as well as people traveling in and out of London. Um, And I found that a lot during the week that we were open, we got all of those different people. Whereas, so the second one, I was actually really hesitant about going central because if I did, yeah, like I said, if I did another pantry permanently, I wouldn't go anywhere near there, to be honest. And even when I was doing it and I was going into the shop every day, it made me realize that I hardly ever go into central London. And so many, so many of our customers said the same thing. And I was a bit worried that it would be super touristy and that we wouldn't really get any kind of local traffic. Uh, but it was actually, I'd say about maybe 30% of our customers were tourists. Like we still had a really large chunk of people who were coming from all over London. Um, and it was it was different. It was, um, I think, also the effect of COVID and uh, the pandemic generally, a lot less people work from the office uh, during the week. So actually, Mondays and Tuesdays were quite quiet. And it was mainly Wednesdays to Sundays that were busy. Whereas at Cold Drops Yard, it felt like every day was busy and it felt mm. like people were coming in and, and more likely to buy groceries because it's a bit more villagey. Whereas in, Cold, in, um, in Seven Dials, it was a bit more, you know, after work coming to do some shopping and also the timing of Christmas helped oh, yes. uh, so they were actually com- they were completely different really really different um in terms of I guess feel but in terms of the people that we attracted it was actually quite similar I loved us uh, on social media seeing all the different people that I follow all posting about your pantry mm-hmm. and actually they're visiting I was like oh, oh everyone's going that's so great <laughs> it was it was really lovely yeah it was so nice um yeah there and, was a real sense of community around it 
And how did you find, because you did pop-ups, you have to invest a lot in like signage. You Mm. did everything beautifully, your colours, your typography. It really looked like a proper shop. How did you feel about doing that? Did you feel like it was worth it in the end? How do you Mm. find the connection between the online and the bricks and mortar? It's an interesting one because, as I kind of said earlier, the pop-ups or at least the first pop-up was just kind of supposed to be something to support the platform online and be like a fun launch event. Um, But they were so powerful as events in terms of like brand building and PR and marketing that a lot of people now know us as a brand that does pop-ups. So it's actually quite complicated. I'm actually in the process now of trying to figure out um, which direction to take it in, I suppose, because I, you know, you know, when you start a business, and I'm sure you'll know this, you, it kind of morphs as you go along, and it, it becomes its own person, and you mm. kind of respond to what people want. And that wasn't necessarily my initial vision for it. My initial vision was for it to be an online space um, that had events. Like I wanted to kind of revise traditional food media online and traditional recipe platforms, which I felt lacked a sense of community because food has such an incredible community building power. So I felt like, you know, there was a, they missed a bit of a trick in terms of holding events. As I mentioned, I mean, pop-ups inherently aren't necessarily the, you know, the moneymaker. So that's kind of why I'm trying to see how I can take it forward, make it a bit more sustainable. Also because it is my side hustle and continue doing what it does and kind of use the pop-ups as a springboard for continuing the the online content and telling stories and celebrating the people that make the food industry what it is. Mm. It's so difficult, isn't it? Because when you see the power of a physical space and how much people love it and they get involved and then they Mm. sort of do stay, I feel, loyal to you far more so than if they just stumbled across you online, especially with you there and they're meeting you and they really feel your energy and what, what your aesthetic is and they buy into it. So I think as a business founder, when you see that powerful effect... You can get caught up in that and be like, well, this is where it's at. This is what I have to do. Mm. But then it's made so difficult for you to do that permanently. It's it's a really for difficult sure. to and get I that sweet spot. It's really difficult. Definitely. And I think because of how much everything changes, especially over the last five years, committing to a permanent space as well is such a big thing. You just you don't know how people's appetites are going to change. You don't know how the world is going to change which is the benefit of a pop-up, right? Like, Mm. it's so nice to be able to dip your toes in it and and see what it's like and how people respond to it. How did you find being a shopkeeper, the role of a shopkeeper? (laughs) I definitely have a newfound respect for those of you who have spent a significant portion of your life in retail. You said another pantry is your side hustle, which is incredible. So to be honest, say five years, my primary work is has been photography, which I kind of never intended to be my main thing. It's always something that I've done and been passionate about as a hobby. And then through some other work that I was doing within the food world, I ended up taking some photos for a couple of bakeries. And it kind of spiralled from there. And I sort of clocked on to the fact that actually... I I quite loved doing it and it made sense as a nice long-term thing for me to focus on in food. But sometimes I find when I'm doing complete full-time photography, I really miss the other stuff. I miss kind of creating the food. So I've been lucky in like recently to do a couple of jobs where I've been able to tie them together. And that's actually happened increasingly since COVID because once we went into lockdown in 2020, I was able to offer 
taking the photos, but also creating the dishes at home if a brand needed that. Um, and I really love doing that. I love kind of, yeah, connecting the dots between the different things that I do. You're a British Iraqi and call yourself a Middle Eastern chef. How does your heritage mainly influence your cooking? In many ways, I think. Um, and not in the more obvious kind of ways necessarily of, you know, ingredients and flavours and stuff. I hadn't really thought about it much until maybe about like three, four years ago. But I guess like, yeah, growing up in between being British and being Iraqi was a a bit of a strange one for me. And I'm sure many, you know, third culture kids will relate. But yeah, it was a it was a tough one. And I think I realised that the one thing that I hadn't really questioned or the one thing that kind of made sense was food. Because I guess, you know, when you're from two different places when someone's like, where, when someone asks you the question, where are you from? You don't really know what to say. And I kind of still struggle with that today, to be honest. But, you know, those the dinners that you have with family and like we used to have Thursday evenings at my grandma's flat. And then on Sundays, all the family would come over to ours and I, our, our extended family, so cousins and everyone. Um, and that just used to feel like home, I guess. And I think really that's probably what ended up being the reason why I found myself in food. Um I think it it just made sense to me for a sense of comfort amongst everything else. And so, mm. yes, I love using all the ingredients as well. And I love kind of mixing things up and taking the kinds of flavors that I grew up with and creating new things with them. Uh, but there's also, I think, a deeper sense of connection to it and the, the general kind of sense. Of, yeah, looking for a sense of belonging, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah. And I've always it's interesting that I say like I'm British Iraqi, but I generally refer to myself more as Middle Eastern because I feel more Middle Eastern. I feel I've never been to Iraq. I was born in the UK. My parents left in the early 80s um, and they've never really been back. And so to me, I kind of feel like a sense of belonging to this region. But because I've never been to Iraq, rather, we kind of when we were growing up, we used to go on holiday to Jordan, which is next door, which is where most of our family moved to um, after the war. Uh, and we've been on holiday to Lebanon and lots of our family now live in Dubai and so, yeah, it's just like a general sense of feeling from that region. And, and there's a similarity in that that the cuisine from that region also doesn't really strictly have borders at risk of saying something, you know, politically incorrect. Like it can get very political. But, yeah. you know, the spices, the zato, samak, cumin, all of that stuff is from all over the place. And, you know, desserts mm. with rose water and cardamom and all of that stuff um, is common to the region. Of course, there are, you know, specifics within like borders within specific countries but generally it's a it's a mix and I'd say there's a there's a food writer Ravinda Bogle I don't know if you know her um I don't she's written a couple she's actually just she's um yeah just she's written a couple of cookbooks and they're great and her first cookbook the subtitle of it is I think it's proudly inauthentic recipes from an immigrant kitchen Mm. and I've always respected her for her like saying it's proudly inauthentic because that's kind of my vibe where Mm. yes I completely I respect that we should be faithful to dishes. That's also my experience of the world. I'm not wholly Iraqi. I'm not wholly British. I'm not wholly Middle East. I'm somewhere in the middle. And so the way that I cook is also reflective of that. Mm. And you 
have obviously experienced the culture of eating and food in two different cultures. So you've got the British culture and your Middle Eastern culture. What about those ways of eating and then maybe those traditions of eating or food have influenced you? Are they, I mean, I can think of a few very obvious comparisons, but um, mm. I'd love to hear it from your point of view. Like in, <laughs> in English, having a Sunday roast or like you say, your family always came over uh, on Thursday or, you know, are yes. there things, the way you eat, how you think about food or certain recipes or what you oh no you can't eat a Yorkshire pudding with lamb you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's funny because I'm probably like the antithesis of an Iraqi person because I don't eat lamb and that's kind of the the center of like, everything of course, yeah yeah Christmas day in our house is always hilarious because I love a, a Christmas dinner like a traditional British turkey all the trimmings but at our house there'll probably be a curry on the table alongside the turkey um, <laughs> and I always used to get so annoyed at that and be like you can't it's just supposed to be this I don't want to have a curry on the table like I don't know, just won't do it side of so curry got... at Christmas I'm taking that <laughs> that is my plan maybe that's not maybe, maybe that's peak British maybe that's actually yeah. like you know where it should be <laughs> That's probably the main one I can think of, to be honest. Yeah, great. Good answer. <laughs> Are there any conversations that you're particularly interested in within British food culture? Food production and farming, I think, are some of the most interesting conversations to be having at the moment. And I think we all need to be having more conversations about them. Again, it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about the divide, I suppose, between the food industry and the consumer. And I think we really need to be thinking a, a lot more about where our food's coming from, how it's grown and the impact it's having on us and on the environment around us. And I just don't think we think about it too much. Like over lockdown is kind of when we started to think about it because, you know, we started shopping from farm shops and we were maybe thinking about the food chain and the food system and and how easily that can be disrupted. And to be honest, a lot of what I've chosen to do with another pantry is to try and make that topic, which can be very heavy and a bit it can probably seem a bit pessimistic at times you know when people throw around oh we've only got 60 harvest left but not really actually think about what that means I suppose another pantry and everything I'm doing is trying to make that a little bit more accessible and a bit more fun I suppose so that people connect with it and engage with it the kind of main thing I guess that I'm thinking of especially is like regenerative farming and regenerative agriculture and there are some amazing things happening in the UK and some incredible companies that are championing it and and a lot of the restaurants that you know if you consider yourself someone who loves going out to eat and loves kind of being in tune with what's going on in the food world a lot of these restaurants support these people and you might not know that directly but it's really worth questioning it it's really worth you know, next time you go into a restaurant, ask them about their suppliers. Like, where do they get their vegetables from? Which farm is it from? Like, what suppliers do they use for their grains? There's a farm in Cambridge called Flourished uh, Produce, which supplies a lot of restaurants in and around London. Um, and what they do is really incredible. Calixta, who's the, the she owns it. Um, she's all about regenerative agriculture and you can kind of look on their website and find out a lot more about their methods and what they do, but they prioritize biodiversity and they grow lots and lots of different crops with the, with the aim of, I suppose, prioritizing their soil. And I know it sounds, it, it comes across as a really boring topic for a lot of people, but it's actually fascinating. And, you know, we eat three times a day. We have three opportunities to think about it. And when you put your mind to change you know in the last couple of years we've managed to do incredible things in cutting the use of single-use plastic and and plastic bags and supermarkets and 
that's amazing but also we don't realize that food and food consumption and food production and food waste contribute a third of greenhouse gases which is huge Mm. (laughs) and I think you know the majority of change probably unfortunately has to come from top down Mm. but there are things that we can do as individuals and wherever we can if we can you know afford to buy from a local greengrocer who's going to pay their supplier, their farmer well, and who knows and can trace where it's come from. I, I think we should be be doing that so that unfortunately doing that is a privilege. But I think the more that we do it, the more normalized it will become. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think conversations around that, I could wax lyrical on this for hours and probably go into it. But um, yeah, regenerative agriculture, biodiversity, soil health, um, just where our food comes from, what's on our plate. And the mm. restaurants and the people that are and the companies and businesses that are doing something to fix what is unfortunately a broken food system, mm-hmm. I think is probably the most important conversation that we could be having right now. Mm. And you've highlighted also that sort of production chain from the farm and the soil right through to it on our plate and in all the people in between that that takes, the, mm. the producers, the makers, the bakers. Mm. Um and that is a whole community in itself. How do you feel the community within the food industry is at the moment, whether that's in food or business and retail? Do you think there is a cohesive conversation going on? I think increasingly so. I think people who are kind of uh, in tune with these conversations and this world, definitely. Um, there's an incredible festival that I think happens the same weekend as Glastonbury, which is hilarious, but it's called (laughs) Groundswell, that um, I went to last year for the first time. um, And I just think everyone should go to it. It's just fascinating. There was such a huge sense of community there. I mean, it's primarily farmers that go, but it's, it's a regenerative agriculture festival, basically. And there's loads of different talks and conversations going on about what we can do. I remember there was a talk, I think, last year about whether eating meat should be as demonized as it is, or like, is it actually a good thing to graze animals as part of you know the the food system and there's just so many conversations that are are happening at industry level and a sense of community around it at industry level that I think really needs to filter down to the consumer I think that's the missing part of the community element um I think it's and I think it's more important than ever I think maybe the, the, the the most simple thing that we can do to improve that is encourage people to shop local and to support those small businesses and to look into them and to maybe order your pulses from a company like Hobmadods as opposed to buying your lentils from Sainsbury's if you can um and I think that will help boost the sense of community and I'm hoping that something like another pantry that is encouraging these conversations in a little bit of a more light-hearted I suppose way will help too. I would love to hear which emerging chefs you found yourself eyeing up recently. Um probably quite a few I wouldn't I don't know whether she's emerging she's kind of um you know she's she's great um Melek Erdal is one of my favourites. She's amazing. She's a Turkish-Kurdish food writer, cook. Um, if you follow her on Instagram, you'll just, you know, salivate all the time. She, I think especially because, um, so my grandma was Kurdish um, and a lot, and Kurdish and my grandfather was Turkish. So a lot of, this is from my mum's side, um, a lot of the food that we eat at home is similar to the kinds of food that Melek creates. And she writes beautifully. Like she really, she writes about, the impact of food and how food makes us feel and how food makes her feel and the community element and so she's great and then 
also I think there are quite a few people in the pastry world who I'm really excited about um at our second pop-up and I'd lined up a different exciting bakery to kind of come and sell their pastries on our counter every weekend of the month but that that last Sunday I opened it up to a small baker or micro bakery or someone who didn't have that customer facing opportunity generally to come and have their pastries on the counter and it was like an application process and lots of people wrote in Mm. which was really lovely and we ended up picking a guy called George who runs Populations Bakery he does it out of his parents kitchen at the moment in Spitalfields and he cycles everything around Um, but it's called Populations Bakery because he prioritizes using population diverse wheat in his bakes which I guess the easiest way to describe population diverse wheat is it's the complete opposite of traditional wheat modern wheat which is short and kind of grown exactly for yield and uniformity so that you get consistency you get the same thing every single time it's the kind of stuff that supermarkets want and and big bread companies want so that they get the same loaf every single time whereas population diverse wheat is is a lot more wild and can have like i don't know 20 30 maybe even more types of wheat like wheat variety within them so they're a bit more crazy and wild like if you look at a field of population diverse wheat it's tall and mad and that the idea of it is for it to be it's more genetically diverse so like say for example a disease affects um a modern wheat variety crop because all that that crop is exactly the same the, the disease will wipe out that whole crop whereas a population diverse wheat is more resilient because there's so many different types to it so a disease might affect one part of it but the rest of it will survive um so yeah he uses and he's, he champions um farmers and millers like local millers as well that that use those different kinds of wheats and heritage grains and and I think he's great his stuff is delicious and I um yeah I think he's going to do great things amazing well I need to try some of his baked goods what kind of baked goods is it savory is it sweet pastry what kind of thing pastry he hand laminates everything in his own kitchen which is crazy so he does croissants danishes he made mince pies for our pop-up too Mm. I'm not sure what his baking schedule is but he does he posts it on Instagram and he sells via a few different platforms um, and does like I think he used to do a weekly bake and then kind of cycle it around. But I'm not sure if it's weekly or or fortnightly. So you know so much at the heart of the food industry. What are you still keen to learn about? There's an endless amount (laughs) to learn. One thing that recently actually I've wanted to learn more about, and I'm an avid enjoyer of it, but don't know too much about the process of it, is wine. There's a book that came out recently by Abby Moulton and it's photographed by a friend of mine, Maria Bell, and it's beautiful. It's such an incredible book and it's just a really interesting read about how traditionally British wine has just been snubbed and it's, you know, it's never been good, to be honest, until like, I think it's the 1970s when some American winemakers came to the UK and they discovered that the soil in, um, I think, around Sussex, I might be totally wrong, actually had a similar... um, it had similar properties to like the, to the soil in Champagne. Um, so they were able to start creating English sparkling wine and that's Nightimber, which mm-hmm. is one mm-hmm. of the most famous English wine brands. I can't decide how I feel about it because it's got a slightly negative undertone in the, in the sense that the fact that we're now able to create British wine because of climate change. We've now got, you know, a climate that allows us to create decent wine. Yeah, it's it's just growing. There's um, the book kind of goes through, I think about 30 different winemakers in, in the country and also wine bars and and stuff like that. And I'd love to like, yeah, I'd love to know more about it because I enjoy drinking wine and I'm Mm. increasingly um, a fan of natural wines too. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'd love to delve a bit more into that. 
Um, have you, when you've been to Bruton, yeah. have you been to Raxall Vineyard, which is nearby? It's like a 10 minute drive from here. No, I haven't. I went to a really cute little wine shop by the station. No, no, there's a proper <laughs> No, vineyard. I haven't been to the vineyard. Is that- yeah, and the, and the view is incredible and the wine's nice. And all oh, the vines, amazing. you sit looking out over this huge vista and then all oh. the vines uh, are next to you. It's amazing. Really good. Raxall amazing. Vineyard. Yeah, I'm trying to find reasons to come back. <laughs> Not that I need to find well, one, but I just I need to like come back. And also the Three Horseshoes, Margot Henderson's pub. Yes. That's another... Yeah, exactly. It feels like London's kind of moving to Somerset, kind of like the new East London. <laughs> Yes, well, I'm I'm loving all of it. (laughs) Um, And finally, what are your plans for the future of Another Pantry? So I'm kind of currently working on rejigging the format of it a little bit. I've taken a little bit of a break for the first half of this year, to be honest, post second pop-up, which was a bit nuts. Needed to take a little bit of time off and to kind of step back and, like I said, figure out what exactly is the best route forward. So normally we release our recipes four times a year, which is in keeping with the seasons. But I'm kind of rethinking that and wondering whether... The fact that the whole platform champions slow food content and slowing things down a little, whether it's actually better to do things a little bit more regularly rather than kind of bombard with, you know, 40 recipes at one time. So I'm thinking of trying that out for a bit and maybe releasing recipes a bit more slowly and gradually. Same with stories. And then the next thing really is to work out how to keep the event side going and what to do next. I don't think there's going to be any more pop-up shops on the horizon for the time being, but it was such an incredibly popular part of another pantry that I want to see if there's a different way that I can bring that to life and bring those products, you know, to our audience in a in a slightly different way. Um, hopefully the second half of this year and continue to do other events really something that I really wanted to do when I launched another pantry was hold panel discussions like I said you know just to keep these kinds of conversations going and bring together people from within the industry and and break the barrier continue breaking the barrier between industry and consumer it sounds so exciting I can't wait for those events and yeah I'll be coming along (laughs) to some of those panel talks when you do them. Safia, thank Please you do. so much for joining me in conversation. I've absolutely loved it and learned so much and I have so many things to check out as well off the back of this. So thank you for your time and your generosity. Oh. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hello. I feel like we always meet around a new moon or a full moon. Have you noticed that? That is that is quite spooky. I was about it's happening. <laughs> yeah. I was about to say, how are you this new moon? We've had this conversation before. <laughs> and I think every time it is a new moon, we're like, I'm awful. <laughs> Oh, what um, they do to us. I've actually felt all right this this moon, but I, a lot of people out there have not. I've noticed. What's your star sign? Cancer. Yeah, new oh, yes, moon and cancer. There you go. I'm really, like I'm in your element. Yeah, yeah, I'm in my element. Yeah. Only time in the whole year. <laughs> Actually, is it yearly or is it more than... Is it yearly that that happens? Yeah, I think it, the new moon moves into cancer and cancer season, which is... Every year. Every year. When your birthday, in the month of your it's birth. generally how time works. <laughs> it repeats. <laughs> okay, so Safia. Yes. I love talking about food and hearing people talk about food. Exactly. It's the perfect episode to do that. Yes. It always makes me hungry. <laughs> I know. And I haven't eaten today, so it's going to be tricky. Oh have you been to Mexico? I have been to Mexico, actually. We went in my early 20s and it was very fun in the mm-hmm. early 20s kind of way it should be. Um, 
I did like hearing about Safia's food memories. Mm. Have you got any travel food memories? My favourite food places to visit will always be Paris. I mm. love eating in Paris. Copenhagen always had some good food there. Mine oh. is Indonesian. Oh, nasi goreng. Yum. I don't know if it's because uh, that's when I was like, must stop saying like every other word. <laughs> I don't know if it's the association with what was happening when I was in Indonesia, just fun and exploring and adventure. But yeah, nasi goreng and the fact that everything was like 50p, but so delicious and fresh and they make it right in front of you. Street Mm. food. When was that? um, Probably, I think I was like 19, 20. It must have been like mind blowing to sort of taste all that different food. and Yeah. Yeah. And just lime on everything. Lime on on rice and butter. That's just just that. Butter and lime. (laughs) Oh, amazing. And actually, you reminded me when I went traveling in Sri Lanka on my own, that was the thing I loved was the food there and having curry for breakfast. Yes. Mm, A savory breakfast. I just think there's nothing better. Talking of curry, Mm. curry on the side of Christmas lunch. Uh, Speaking to my mum about it now, it's going to be confirmed forever. (laughs) How delicious. (laughs) I know. Yeah, and it's funny how we have these like really strict parameters that we build around things as in this has to be this way. Mm-hmm. And we never really sort of rethink those boundaries until someone else shows you it can be done differently and suddenly you're like, actually, that's really fun and different. Yeah. Well, how about roast dinners and Yorkshire puddings? For ex- So would you have a Yorkshire pudding <laughs> with chicken? With chicken or lamb or... Well, first of all, I love Yorkshire puddings and I'd have them in a bowl with gravy in front of a TV. Would I have it with different roasts? No, I wouldn't. Mm. No. I mean, I would if someone provided it to me, but I would never like, You'd go, not oh, request. I'm doing a roast chicken, I'm going to do Yorkshire's. Mm. Do you? Do you have it with everything? I would do. I've never really understood why you only have Yorkshire puddings with beef. Like, it's, pe- it's a nice fluffy mm. carb. Why wouldn't you have it with chicken? It would taste so good with chicken. And chicken gravy. Yeah. Delicious. How about an apple sauce with lamb rather than pork? Would you mix your, your sauces? Oh, God. You're really <laughs> pushing me. I actually don't think I would. I think I'm quite, like, straight when it comes to stuff like that. Sorry, I keep playing footsie with you under the table. <laughs> By the way, those are my feet, so oh, I don't know what you're they? doing. Yeah, I think I'm a bit straight and they're making me feel boring. Mm, you need to jazz up your roast dinners. I need to jazz, jazz them up. Bacon sandwich. Tomato ketchup or brown sauce? Oh, I'm controversial with this because I have mayo and ketchup. Oh. Sorry, I'm embarrassed so you are and shamed. Wild. You are flexible and wild and free with I your food so choices. I am so wild. The right answer, just for everyone listening, <laughs> is bacon sandwich with tomato ketchup and a cup of tea. Simple. Tea with it? Cup of tea with a bacon sandwich. I can't eat hot drinks with food. But it's, it's like... Unless it's a cake. It's what goes with a bacon sandwich. Is it? What would you have? A cold glass of water with nothing? Bacon? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> and then afterwards, glug a whole pint because it's so salty. <laughs> Not a pint of beer, as in oh. just a pint of juice. Not juice. Oh, God. No, that would, that would make me need the lid. <laughs> just a pint of water. Right, Okay. Well, fair enough. Mm. And actually, the way I eat is a bit weird. It's like, I'm not such a mixer on the plate. I don't, like, build mouthfuls. And that's weird, Do isn't you? it? Is that slightly strange? So you'd have, strange? you'd have the peas and then the chicken sort of and then an the order, potato. Yeah. And there are some things that I will mix. It's, I have weird rules, and I actually don't know where they came from. I should probably you know, get really some it. serious help on that. 
That's really interesting. Yeah. It's like a child's way to eat. <laughs> and lockdown, did you get into any baking or... I mean, I know you love cooking anyway, mm. but did that amp up in lockdown for you? Yes. In lockdown, I suddenly started having to take photographs myself mm. and try to sell things online like plates. So I think, oh, what a good excuse to make a cake or make a dish or whatever. And then I can photograph it on various ceramics. So I did start baking random hard things like it was Easter. Random hard so. things. <laughs> mm, Sounds delicious. So, yes, but other than that, I also started producing a dinner box mm. um, called Wanda. Oh, yes. Nice. And that was really fun. We invited guest chefs, of which Nicholas was going to be one before I nearly had a nervous breakdown and decided <laughs> not to do them anymore. They were boxes around a central theme and inside were pantry accessories. Mm. And then you'd have a menu and you'd go and buy the ingredients. That sounds lovely. But you didn't say how you knew Safia. She came into the shop, oh. like all, like everyone like all. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think she posted some lovely photographs of the mm. shop, which I was very grateful for. And then we started an Instagram relationship. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And then, and then when she did another pantry, I just loved everything that she was doing. And yeah. Actually, she made me think when she was introducing sort of what she does. And she was like, you know, I'm always doing so many things. And she sort of almost laughed about it. One thing I've noticed being a coach and also coaching women who have like their own business, a lot of the time we think we have to have this one thing. And actually it's so nice to hear that she's got these three different sort of roles and jobs that she does in these careers and they can live alongside one another in harmony. And I think like this modern world has given us the opportunity now to have like multiple streams potentially that we can follow in terms of our careers and I think that's really exciting yeah I've always loved the idea I mean I know people call them side hustles but I remember even being in my like late teens and reading red magazine and the hairdresser and always loving the articles that interviewed women and what they do you know the day in the life of and mm. loving the idea of that you could do lots of different things. I love reading what people do in their day and I, I can never get enough of that kind of content. I know. <laughs> what is it about that? Like, oh, I wake up at 8 a.m. and then yeah. I go for a run and then I'm just... It makes just... it all sound so neat, I think. So it makes it sound really neat and like, aspi like inspiring, aspiring. Like, yeah. My days are so far from that. Like I, I, I dream of having this sort of like, I wake up at this time every day and do this exact thing and drink this thing. But like the reality is, you know, get knocked over the head by a pepper pig doll and I'm up <laughs> and living in someone else's shoes for 10 minutes mm. sort of the escapism of it they're shiny shoes you know yeah the, the ones way they they're telling show it. us yeah they're not exactly. telling it how it really is no um but it, it's 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 like motivation I think that's why it's fun um, have you been did you go to her pop-ups no, I wasn't able to. Unfortunately, one was at Christmas mm. and it was impossible to leave the shop. I loved the fact she combined bricks and mortar with the digital platform. Mm. And it was really interesting kind of talking to her about how each of those channels was successful in different way. Mm. Have you ever thought about having a more physical extension of your brand? I mean, yes, and I'm getting my office soon and I'm wondering how I can make it more public facing. So I want to do in-person workshops. Um, I'm also going to do <clears throat> like an open community morning where anyone in the community of South Petherton will be able to come and get some coaching for free. 
which I'm looking forward to doing so like one morning a week I dedicate to that I will be dedicating to that but what I was going to ask actually which what made me think about the future of retail really and do you think that's a potential future of retail for independent brands my instinct is that that is the way it's sort of going because more and more people are closing independence I mean Mm. and the big stores you know more and more of the big chains are closing you see I mean the high streets are changing causing us all to wait for something is quite a good idea with pop-ups if a brand isn't I don't know does something four times a year rather than just thinking oh we can go anytime and then you never actually go if you have something in the diary that's that pop-up oh my god we have to go it's going to be great fun they always do a great event yeah see their brand encapsulated in real life um, I don't know what's happening with my, with my voice, but basically I'm a teenage boy and it's like, <laughs> my voice keeps breaking. Do you ever get that thing where suddenly your throat closes up and you suddenly sound like, oh, like you're drowning in your own <laughs> I think I probably throat. do. <laughs> Nerves. Um, did you get any boxes delivered in COVID? What were your favourite? I did local boxes. So I got one from Ossip, which is lovely. And mm. they actually did it in baskets. Oh, wow. And it was lovely. Oh, they had all their little jars, which were beautifully handwritten in the label. For the listeners, Natalie's doing something very strange with her hands. <laughs> I'm pretending oh. to handwrite the labels. <laughs> oh, fun, fun. Um, and also the newt because it was mm. in that time that they started sending out in lockdown that they started sending out their boxes and they right. were incredible actually on another pantry Safia does some brilliant interviews and at the end of the interview she asks what the top items are in their pantry mm. so for example Thomasina Myers said range of dried chilies herbs in pots her red wine vinegar mother Mm. And Anna Hingham says seasonal honey, pimhol oats and river cafe olive oil. Very mm. specific there. What are your top pantry items? Where does a pantry begin and end? Like is pasta? Yes. Oh, well, then, I would okay, say number one pasta. Right. Chickpeas in the jar. In a jar, not a tin. I like both, but like the jar is like the fancy ones when I'm really? feeling flushed. They're delicious. Like, oh, I've never had a jarred chickpea. The Brindisia jars of chickpeas. Sorry. Oh my goodness. Somebody <laughs> send her some. Definitely apple cider vinegar. That's three. Anchovies, four. Ooh. Mold and salt, five. What about you? Brindisi olive oil. Mm. Giant couscous. Delicious. Capers. Soy sauce. Soy sauce. Sesame oil. Fish sauce. <laughs> you don't know what your top five are. No. God, okay. I'm, I'm useless. What's really nice about what Safia does is it's really is shining a light on ingredients and as she said the fragility of our food system and I think that sort of work is really important and so more people doing the kinds of things which she's doing where it sort of highlights makers what it takes to make a sourdough how long it takes and all those sorts of things is really wonderful and a really good contribution absolutely and bring community to the food industry and topics of that nature right at the heart of the food industry is what we really should be discussing isn't it absolutely and you know I think as she said it was a very hot topic in lockdown and I wonder where people's heads are with it now so much has happened since lockdown inflation is like insane yeah so her continuing to have those conversations are probably more important now 
than yeah. ever. And also Brexit and the repercussions of transport, importing, exporting, all of that has happened since lockdown. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's such a confusing space. Yeah, so to bring the community to that and to be able to like shine a light on that so that the general public start to understand a bit more what goes into people's passions, which is cooking and making food to sell, is it's blooming hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Safia. Thank you, Safia. I'll see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>